Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. In case you're just recently joining us or however long you've been a listener of the Retail Exchange Podcast, you may not realise that we have over five years of incredible episodes in our archive. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to listen back to some of our previous episodes of the interview series, featuring insight and opinion from inspiring senior retail leaders. Welcome to the interview series on the Retail Exchange Podcast with me, Carl McKeever. Our guest today is Kate Walsh, SVP Omnichannel Retail at Pandora. As it celebrates 40 years in business, Pandora remains loved by consumers and employees around the world in equal measure. Delve deeper into the fabric of the Danish jewellery brand and it's possible to understand why this retail gem continues to be so successful. Like the brand's national birthplace, Pandora is also built on a human scale. Something that's put it in good stead to face the global challenge from the recent pandemic and to respond to future changes ahead. The brand continues to make its distinctive way in a highly competitive world, something that Kate also knows how to do all too well. Having started in retail management at an early age, she went on to appear on the UK series of The Apprentice, before eventually embarking on a near decade-long career with Pandora. She reveals the charm of working for this iconic jewellery brand, how it is repurposing and revitalising its offer for the future, the lessons she's learned about how to do business better, and her own views on whether The Apprentice is still as good as it used to be. Here's the interview. My next guest on the Retail Exchange podcast is Kate Walsh, Senior Vice President Omni Retail from Pandora. Welcome. Thanks, Carl. Great to see you. So, Kate, tell us, Pandora is celebrating its 40th year anniversary this year. What have you got in store? I mean, what an amazing journey it's been, you know, from humble beginnings over in Copenhagen, 1982, to the world's largest uh, jewellery brand. And of course, it was really uh, the year 2000 that put us on the map with our charm and bracelet uh, concept. But I'm very happy to say that I'm speaking to you off the back of a very successful year with our biggest ever Q4 period, that all-important Christmas period uh, that we've ever had. So I'm very happy that we continue to bring our affordable jewellery to the masses all over the world. So let's just look back for a moment at that moment in time where your your brand really was in the zeitgeist of the moment with, the, as you said, the charm and the bracelets and queues of people outside stores around the world. How was that? I mean, it still is, I'm happy to say, dependent on the market. Of course, we've seen an online shift, but we certainly still have the queues. I mean, speaking to you here in Italy, I I was fortunate enough to be visiting Italy over Black Friday last year, and the brand remains as desirable as ever. You know, I think over the years, there's been some comments about, you know, is uh, the charm and bracelet concept a fad? Uh, Absolutely not. I mean, we know that charm bracelets have been around since uh, Egyptian times for thousands of years and at the moment we still have 71% of our business coming from that charms and carriers business. We of course continue to innovate in that space so we started with our iconic bracelet but now we're bringing new ways for customers to wear our charms whether that's on a keyring or a bag carrier you can put them on necklaces so you so know you can keep it's those endless. Favourite keepsakes with you in different ways. You can absolutely and you know to kind of build on that we've introduced new jewellery platforms 
films. So last year over in the UK, while I was managing director uh, UK and Ireland, we launched our lab-grown diamond concept uh, called the Brilliance Collection, our first ever carbon neutral collection. And of course, you know, lab-grown diamonds aren't completely new, but they're not known to a lot of UK consumers. So that's been a really exciting uh, journey, kind of, you know, telling our loyal fans uh, all about the new collection. And, you know, we continue to innovate and also build our, our jewellery products as well. And you mentioned a word there, fans and loyalty. And I think this is one of the things which has really been quite a, an important part of the whole Pandora story. You know, you typically get one item and then you build a following which people stick with you for quite some time. I'm very happy to say they do. I mean, we see generations of families shopping together. You know, a grandmother with the mum, with a granddaughter, that's quite special and quite unique. I'm not sure that there are many brands that really can appeal across such a broad age group. And of course, we hear so many emotional stories in our stores. Our salespeople are amazing. Uh, very often our customers come in, they know who they want to shop with, they'll ask for their favourite sales associate by name. And we really stay with our customers through all of those important milestones in their lives. So when you think about it and you put the whole Pandora experience together, what's really the secret sauce? The secret sauce has to be our people and the emotion and sentiment of our product. I often joke that it's only the hairdressers and Pandora stores where you know, you'll hear all about people's lives and the special meaning that jewellery plays in their lives. And you know, that, that's something that's very special. And I think coming off the back of the last two years, people are craving that human connection more than ever. Um, we've got very tactile product. You know, you can style it in so many different ways. And we can see that our customers are really hungry to come back to store, to try on the product and to share their stories. You know, we're even seeing uh, <laughs> booming sales of, of product that really represents new beginnings. So it was really interesting. We launched a beautiful butterfly charm to represent spring. And of course, lots of people will buy that for the, the lovely blue color and the craftsmanship and the detail. Um, but I've heard so many stories of people buying that charm to represent the fact that we're looking forward to a positive future, mm, mm. kind of emerging from that chrysalis uh, and really trying to spread our wings again. So I think the symbolism of, of jewellery and the fact that, you know, people can pass it on, mm. you know, it's a very sustainable category. Well, of course, people with jewellery, you, you, you touch into so many special moments within yes. people's lives, whether yes. that's around births or mm -hmm. special occasions or uh, awards and ceremonies, all those kind of things. So there's there's regular moments almost to go back in and, and stimulate uh, the customer with something more. Quite right. I mean, Pandora is the kind of business that, you know, really just generates huge loyalty and, and real fans, as, as you mentioned before. And it's great that they return for so many different reasons, sometimes very unusual reasons as well. And what Such a chance. <laughs> well, you know, I went, into, um, I went into one of our stores after we launched the Star Wars uh, collection and, you know, a, a gentleman was buying one of the charms for what might 
not be a very flattering reason for his partner and it was an endearing nickname that they had and sometimes it's just quite surprising what people will share but I'm not sure all women would be thrilled to be compared to this particular Star Wars uh, character but yeah it's it's really interesting um, how people apply their own meaning and there's such cultural relevance as well so visiting one of our Italian stores recently I asked you know what's the charm that you most typically uh, sell to represent friendship and they shared that it was the fox charm and apparently there's a children's book over here where the fox is the best friend of the main character so so this has absolutely no relation at all to Leicester City no relation to it <laughs> although I would happily sell a charm to any Leicester City fan out there um, but you know you've just unlocked some of the power of Pandora mm. and that is something that you, you can know, put meaning and interpretation exactly, in lots of different ways. Exactly, and something that means one thing to one person means something completely different to, to someone else. So, you know, it, it really keeps it interesting when you're working in our stores. So, 40 years on, what's the mission now? Is the business largely the same as it was, or how have you changed? I mean, we have gone through a period of transformation. You know, we had some um, tough times, and we launched a two-year transformation period in 2018, program now. Very happy to say that it worked. Uh, from a financial point of view, we're back on track. And last year, we launched our Phoenix strategy, which is really about accelerating the growth. So it's great to be working uh, with a company with still so much opportunity. And of course, we want to build our jewellery platforms beyond charms and carriers. And at that time, mm-hmm. what was um, Program Now trying to address? So Program Now, I mean, we love an acronym, but it was standing for Next Level Efficiency, One global company and winning customers' hearts and minds. And really, um, we'd lost sight of the customer um, somewhat. And I think it was really about refocusing the organization around what's really important and coming together as a global community. So we had a reorganization at that point in time and we actually removed a regional layer that sat between the global office and our markets. Very happy to say that lots of those people found new, great, exciting roles. Um, But what it meant is we really brought that global organization closest um, to the customer. Mm. We went from what I would call a kind of 90-10, you know, we come up with all of the great ideas 90% of the time in in global office and push it onto our, our local clusters to a real 50-50 collaboration model. Mm, So bringing that global community much closer together. So with that, um, do do your consumers suggest or recommend ideas into the design team about the types of things they'd like to see? Via our store teams all of the time. So So other businesses like Lego, for example, have done particularly well. So I don't Mm -hmm. know whether that's a particular almost Scandinavian philosophy here. I think you're onto something there. I mean, that's one of the things I've always loved about working for Pandora is the Scandinavian culture. You know, there's a real lack of hierarchy and and bureaucracy in a really, really great way. So it doesn't matter, you know, who you are, anyone can come up with a great idea. Mm. So I always like to say, you know, we have different job titles, we have different responsibilities, but we really are one team. Mm. And, you know, going out to visit our stores on a regular basis it's something our design team does our merchandising team does Mm. I do very regularly and you know really having those open conversations to ask how can we help you to serve our customers better and to do a better job that's very much at the heart of what we do 
And you mentioned that, that other important word, I think, in your story, global. How many markets and what's the, the stretch and reach of Pandora today? I mean, Pandora has huge reach globally uh, around the world. Um, we're present in um, most of the main markets. Um, India isn't uh, a market that we've expanded into uh, yet, and we don't have definite plans And is that uh, because of some of the, the, the ownership models that you need to have to, to work in, in India? I mean, it's always interesting with the ownership models. I mean, speaking from my own experience uh, in the UK, you know, that was once very much driven by our franchise partners. And there's been a lot of forward integration uh, in previous years. We still work with distributors in a lot of other markets. We still have a large franchise presence in North America and also some of our European clusters. So we have a range of, of different operating models out there. Right. So and, essentially, whatever yeah. other market prevailing conditions you can yes. pick and mix and find a way to, to work yeah I think that's the right way to do it and of course key to that is is finding the right um, partner and um, one that has the right cultural fit and when you're working with a distributor or a franchise partner you're effectively introducing another customer into your business model that you mm. need to partner with as mm. well as the end consumer uh, to really support um, and and I think that can be a real strength and I've certainly learned an awful lot from our franchise partners over the years mm. about how to operate a great Pandora store so and, it brings and, a different perspective and when you've been looking to grow into new markets clearly you know as a, as a young brand relatively mm -hmm. young brand there will have been some growing pains where has that pain been and where can you offer some advice perhaps for other brands who are looking to develop more of an overseas presence I mean it's very important to keep the customer at the heart of, of what you do and really to listen to the customer look at the insights and consider you know where you need to use your scale and your global presence versus where you need to customize perhaps your marketing campaigns or your product assortment to that local uh, customer because for sure you know even my previous role in northern europe we saw big differences in the german market to say the the market in the netherlands in terms of what customers wanted to buy how they wanted to style their their jewelry so having a consistent global voice but personalizing so right. not just localizing but personalizing at individual customer level uh, is something that's that's very important and i guess we're quite blessed that we have the kind of product that enables us to do that. So you have to be quite sensitive to the local audience and, and not essentially uh, decide that one size fits all. Quite, quite right. I mean, we really do see differences in the product that performs in different markets. So in UK uh, and North America, it's very sentimental. And um, we sell a lot of products that are related to family and relationships. Uh, in Germany, we saw um, more products being purchased on style and functionality. But one of the interesting developments we've had is, is when we've launched engraving in non-English language speaking countries, it's really boomed because many of our charms have beautiful engraving, but it is typically in the English language right. um, so that we can scale um, production for our, for our largest markets. So, you know, introducing engraving, it really surprised us in a positive way because it's been another way to localise and actually personalise to that end consumer. Yeah, and I'm sure give more relevance to the product. Yes, for, for sure. Yeah. Where you have expanded overseas, have there been any kind of, any 
big misses, things you think, oh, crikey, I wish we could go back and have done that differently. I'm very happy to say that all of the markets I've had uh, experience of have been successful and continue uh, to watch. grow. Um, I mean, not always on my watch, but sometimes on my, on my watch. Um, you know, China's an interesting market for us. Of course, they're still going through incredibly uh, tough times over there. Uh, and we've been working very, very hard to understand uh, that customer. I've really enjoyed in, in this role that I've been in, you know, since September last year, getting much closer to our, our business over there in China. And I think we can learn a lot from them. So, mm. you know, all of the live streams we're doing from store over WeChat, you know, it's teaching us a lot about live shopping and, and the, you know, Chinese version of TikTok Douyin, um, where we're launching also our live shopping uh, channel. I think, you know, we can learn a lot from these markets, but we perhaps need to be more open-minded, adaptable, and I think a test and learn approach, uh, starting quite small in some areas to really see what resonates with that customer mm. before we scale it, uh, is a very sensible approach. And given what you said earlier in the, um, the, the interview here, um, around almost the very personal nature of uh, a customer experience in store, how does omni-channel and e-commerce kind of work with that? Because surely it's almost the, the antithesis of what you're doing in store because you know, famously um, online is convenience-based, it's, it's logically driven, it's not emotional purchasing. Um, so almost a, a very different type of model and scenario that you want customers to go through. I mean, with our selling ceremony, which we call Spark, it's all about sparking positive emotions with our customers in store and really um, building that connection, uh, which is one of the things that we measure through our Net Promoter Score uh, program. We really keep a keen eye on adapting behaviour to the customer type. So whether that's a mission shopper that really wants convenience, uh, whether that's somebody that's just wanting to browse and be inspired, whether it's a gifter that needs particular advice, I think there are commonalities in customer types throughout the globe, and it's a more global world that we're living in. So but That must be incredibly difficult to replicate on online? Uh, I mean, we, we don't want to replicate kind of online, you know, entirely in store, otherwise what's the point of bricks and mortar? So our mission is to really take the best bits of online into the in-store environment and then vice versa. So what do people love to experience in store and how can we replicate that in the online uh, environment? So, you know, we embrace digital technology in our stores. Sometimes it can have a very um, practical role. So I talked about engraving in our charms. Sometimes the detail is very small. You know, if we have a visually impaired customer come in, giving our sales associate an iPad that they can really blow up the detail of the product to show that customer the beautiful detail can really assist in that purchase. Of course, yeah. So, you know, we use technology in smart ways, but Endless Isle, of course, is a great way if a product's uh, out of stock, uh, and that works regardless of the market that we're operating in. Um, I'm very proud of what we've been able to achieve with Click and Collect, um, with fulfillment from in-store inventory in some of our main markets, such as the UK, we've been able to push our delivery promise to two hours on key gifting occasions, such as Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. So we've really so been able really to turn it around quickly. So there really is no excuse as a hapless male to you know, miss <laughs> on some of these big moments. Absolutely not, although I will share a secret. Um, the day after Valentine's Day was particularly 
particularly large this year and the basket size and what people were willing to spend when they were a day late yes. was a lot higher than so those that had been organised before. guilt in those transactions. Yes, there was guilt in the transactions. There were a lot more transactions than we were expecting, um, but we're actually seeing a return to more normal shopping behaviour. Right. So again, previous years, we saw people wanting to buy sooner. They were worried perhaps with um, what's been happening on the, the world uh, stage with global supply chain. Could they get that uh, item that they really wanted? Whereas now we're seeing the last minute shoppers uh, return. Denmark is a, uh, a nation which is uh, famous for its product design. Uh, many famous designers uh, from architecture, ceramics, glassware, you name it. Is there something in the water? You're right. For, for a relatively small country, uh, Denmark really punches above its weight when it comes to design on the world stage. Um, I think it's a unique part of our DNA, the pride in the product, the craftsmanship, and also the sustainability credentials. You know, that really is a very important part of our heritage, and it's a great uh, export around the world. But important to say, we also work with um, designers and, and really really value diversity and, and inclusion. We want to represent our customers in the, the different markets. So even though we're based in Denmark, you know, we're really striving for a, a more diverse uh, team, mm. working towards uh, serving our customers and representing them better. Um, and as a store, as a jewellery store, you have a very distinctive interior and, and certainly make a quite a strong presence on the high street. Um, how easy will it be now to kind of update that estate over time? Because you've kind of landed largely within a, within a time window. Updating those to something new or different could be expensive. How, how will you go about that? I mean, we're very fortunate that we see great returns in our stores um, when we invest and, and refresh them. So, you know, any business, there has to be financial considerations. But I think we're very fortunate that we have got our new store, uh, the Evoke concept, as it's called, being Could rolled you out as we speak. Of course I can. So um, the first one that we opened was actually just outside of London uh, in Enfield. We wanted to take a representative, um, you know, kind of average revenue store um, to see um, if we could make this new concept uh, work. So, of course, it was about modernising uh, the look and feel, but we really started with the customer journey and our sales associate journey because we know if we make their lives easier, if we make it easier to access product, to find product and to sell it to the customer. That's a really interesting yeah. way of, of you've uh, gone about that. Because yes. More often than not, the, the, you know, the cart does come before the horse, uh, so to speak, in you know, a lot of design decisions. So, you know, a big fancy design firm might be brought in and they impose a vision of what they think good looks like. But it seems that you've been going about that in a more ultimate intuitive way? Yeah, I mean, we learned the hard way um, because the store concept that we launched, it must have been around three years ago and um, prior to our Evoke concept, we did exactly that. So we started with, you know, beautiful design, great features, but our store teams uh, told us that it was more difficult to transact. Right, they didn't embrace it. No, and we could see that it, it, it wasn't converting customers as well as we would have liked. So, you know, it, it's that truism that you often learn 
learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. So we really built on that experience to keep the great bits, uh, some of the look and feel, um, but actually make it easier to, to operate. But the, the elements that really worked was incorporating more glass to really see the beautiful design of our product and also unlocking wall space. Um, a lot of our stores are quite small format and as our assortment grows and we build our new platforms, we need to be able to showcase a bigger range of product in different ways. So previously, you would just be able to really transact and sell from the floor fixtures. Mm. Now we've actually opened up our walls. So rather than just being a gallery, that people browse, we actually can sell from our walls as well. Of course, using a mobile point of sale to transact wherever that customer wants to buy. So it really enables a greater ease of trying on, more inspiration. We can see that browsing time has increased in our new concept and also that it performs best when we're at our busiest. And I'm sure from a sales per square foot basis as well that you're ticked a lot more boxes there for sure you know it's really helping us to work harder uh, with the space that we've got so Mm. very happy with the new design uh, and we've got more being uh, rolled out uh, in the coming months fantastic i'm really keen to know about your own uh, early years you know uh, having joined pandora and now doing some amazing things what came before all that I mean, how far back do you want to go? Should I tell you where I grew up? No, no, let's, no. Keep, let's keep it to the kind of almost a professional <laughs> no, start. Of course, of course. I mean, you know, I've had a passion for retail and hospitality um, from a young age. Um, I am going to mention my, my first ever role because um, it's when I discovered my passion for customers uh, and and to really provide that great level of service and it was at McDonald's so when I was 16 I spent two years working for McDonald's um, part-time I was promoted to floor manager aged just 17 with an awful lot of responsibility and I still remember competing in McDonald's uh, super team to be the best till person in the West Midlands so So competing is an interesting word yes Um, I have an inkling that there might have been another part of your life where competition was quite important. Absolutely. So, you know, I've always been competitive and I make no excuses for that. You know, I'm ambitious and I like to win. Uh, And, you know, throughout my career, I've I've always looked to kind of push myself. But, of course, I took an interesting um, diversion and had an interesting experience when I applied to go on the UK version of The Apprentice. Um, I filmed it 14 years ago now, back in 2000. And eight, so a long time ago, but it had a really big impact on me. I mean, it was an amazing experience. Um, I'd, I'd watched the program for a few years prior to applying, and I really identified with some of the great business people I was watching on there. And of course, it's before it went very mainstream, and now I do feel it's much more entertainment. Back then, um, it wasn't as well known, and it was really something that seemed like a great challenge to work with people from across different sectors being thrown into uncertain, challenging situations uh, and ultimately the opportunity to get a great role with a a business person that I admired uh, being Lord Sugar. And of course, this is where you and I have uh, an interesting crossover there in terms of our own background because I myself was a a judge on The Apprentice, not in the same series, but wouldn't it have been interesting in this conversation now if I'd have helped to contribute to getting you booted off? It it really really would. So um, I'm pleased you didn't. Um, But yeah, I, I, I came a close second. So a very close second. Yeah. So I was I was happy that, you know, I did my best throughout the process and, you know, I've kept in contact with a lot of people that 
that I went through the apprentice experience with. But yeah, but maybe it, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing now had you have you know taken the big prize for sure. And you know, it was it was a gamble doing the show. You know, when I applied, I was at a bit of a crossroads in my life. You know, I'd I'd just come out of a long term relationship. I didn't like where I was living. I wanted to move to London. I wanted to make a change. So a big a big gamble. It was a big gamble, and I think, you know, it goes to show that sometimes um, big risks can really pay off. I did have some embarrassing moments on there, as uh, most candidates do, but generally I approached it as a virtual CV, and after the process ended, I was very fortunate that I was contacted by a range of different um, companies to do consultancy projects through retail, sales, marketing, and it really gave me the opportunity over a few years to work across a lot of different uh, industries. And presumably to find, you know, your way. What did you like? What stimulated you? Where You're did you want to... Right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And what it taught me is the importance of culture. So mm. I enjoyed being a consultant, but I also found it quite lonely at times. You know, you go in, you make some recommendations, but you wouldn't be there to see the project through to fruition mm. and actually measure the results. So as and when it was time for me to think about a career move and, and building my career back in a, a company, um, culture was of number one importance because I'd experienced so many different uh, companies and I knew that it needed to be the right fit, um, somewhere that I could be my authentic self, mm. uh, which I also really embraced after The uh, Apprentice. As One of the pieces of feedback I had from Lord Sugar was that I uh, sometimes came across as a, a corporate robot. And, you know, I realised that perhaps when I was younger and a little bit more insecure um, in my professional career, that I was, you know, trying to put on a bit of a facade uh, and not really uh, bringing my full personality to the workplace. So that was another big learning from that process and, you know, direct feedback from Lord Sugar himself uh, to be more authentic. Uh, and that's something I've really embraced as a leader. Mm. I'm happy to say... Uh, almost nine years into my Pandora journey and on my fifth role, it seems to be working for me. So, mm. you know, I've, I've got the um, apprentice process to, to thank for, for giving me that feedback as well. Yeah, and I think it's helped many, many people on their way. Uh, as part of that, you just said there, again, another important word, I think um, culture is something which figures very highly at Pandora. I think that the business has been recognised uh, many times how it looks after its people and none more so than recently during the pandemic. Could you tell us about that? Of course, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of the way that Pandora looks after its people. So as part of the Phoenix strategy, uh, we relaunched our values. We dare, we dream, we deliver, but most importantly, we care. And that really is fundamental to how we work. And throughout the pandemic, you know, we continue to pay all of our colleagues in full. And, you know, the outpouring of appreciation uh, and, you know, loyalty to our brand. If we look after our people, they will look after our business uh, in return. Yeah, and I think you were an early mover on all of that, and that was before uh, governments around the world introduced furlough schemes, all that that type of thing. You, you you kind of worked right out of the gate there, and actually saying, you know, you know, you will not suffer as a result of what's going on. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. That was the approach that we took, and you know, it was it was just so motivating and it really just gave a, a lot of comfort to a lot of people mm, through sure. some incredibly tough times so yeah it was great so so as a business you're clearly very um, adapt and able to embrace change mm -hmm. but where do you think are some of the barriers there you know uh, not all of the markets I'm sure will be have quite that same spirit that um, you share in terms of a general approach to, to getting things done 
change for some people is much harder, takes mm -hmm. longer, it's uh, more pain barriers perhaps to go through. What's your recipe though for trying to get people to really embrace change and to see it for the, the opportunities that it can bring? Well, of course, change is very hard, um, but communication is key. I think trying to establish that culture of trust where, you know, we can encourage people to ask for help because, you know, very often, you know, you're going to need a lot of help along the way. Uh, and I think, you know, embracing failures, and we hear a lot of people talking about that, but actually giving people permission to fail as we go through change transformation, creating that forum to, to really learn from that, and also to listen is of utmost uh, importance. So I think, you know, it's those personal connections and that sense of team uh, that can really help you through that change transformation process. So having quite a human approach, really. Yes, for, for sure. I mean, that's very much my leadership style. Uh, as we've touched on, I believe it's the, the culture that we emulate uh, in Pandora. Um, but yes, remembering uh, permission to be human, uh, that we're not machines, uh, and really engaging people's hearts and minds. It kind of goes back minds. to Lord Sugar's comment, really, doesn't it? It you does, know, Don't yeah. be ro robotic, be your authentic self. Yes, and I, you know, I, I think you know, those small moments that I try to make time for across the day um, to, to go and chat to people around the coffee machine. I am a believer in leadership by walking around around and um, so you know I will just drop mm. in and, and speak to people uh, at their desks which is why I'm happy that we've returned to more of a hybrid way of working because I think you know that's where you really build those close connections mm. but creating the informal interactions you know I always like to have you know birthday breakfast where possible where we can bring uh, people together that wouldn't normally sit down together to kind of chat and, and get to know each other in a non-work sense but also to ask me anything uh, mm. you know nothing's out of bounds I think it's important to, to really be honest also when you don't know uh, the answers to role model that kind of behaviour mm. you've, you've recently moved to Copenhagen as part of your recent promotion and new role how are you finding the city? Copenhagen is amazing. I've always wanted the opportunity to experience living there. It just really um, captured my imagination when I first visited with Pandora almost nine years ago. It's an amazing city. People are wonderfully down to earth. It's a slower pace um, versus London. Amazing food scene, wonderful people, great city to just walk around. Sometimes the weather's not great, but it isn't in London either. And I'm really just enjoying uh, having another change of scenery and mm. it's all part of the experience. So yeah, and I'm I think part, part of what you obviously enjoy about Pandora is the kind of small scale but almost its bigger presence and I think in many ways Copenhagen is like that too it has a village feel but you know it's a big player on the world stage I think you've summed up Copenhagen perfectly um, and there's also quite a diverse range of people now working in our global office so the talent agenda and mobility is, has also been something we've really focused on in the last two years so you know we've got people from all over the world, working in my own team and working in the global office in, in general. So you've got that village feel in Copenhagen, but we've really got that sense of being an international uh, company with a very uh, interesting bunch of colleagues that we get to work with on a, a daily basis. Brilliant. And a couple of ambitions for the next um, few years. What would you like Pandora to be doing or being, let's say, if you were to look three years from now? 
Um, I really like the expression that we use, uh, grow the core and fuel with more. So continuing to innovate with our design, continuing to drive our brand desirability, but also being leaders uh, in sustainability. So we've got some big ambitions uh, in that space. So by 2025, we intend to be carbon neutral in our own uh, operations. Well, and that's pretty early, actually, as a deadline. Uh, it is, it is. Um, so we're making some great progress uh, against that. Um, we also want to work towards being 100% recycled uh, with the sterling silver and the metals uh, that we use in our collections. And uh, by 2030, we would like gender parity in our leadership, but also to be um, more inclusive and representative in all of the markets marketing activity that we're doing uh, around the world. So, you know, this carbon neutrality and um, circularity uh, and a, a diverse and inclusive workplace that's a great place to be. Uh, so it's not just what we're going to achieve, but it's how we're going to achieve it that's important. Amazing. Well, that sounds like an awful lot to keep you busy, and I can sense that you will relish every moment of those uh, challenges ahead. I will. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, um, Kate, Senior Vice President of Omni Retail at Pandora. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carl. It's been great. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.